Amen. I'm excited to start something new. It's been a while. We've been, um, we, we did 24 sermons on Josh. I got some head nods in the back and said, yes, glad to be doing something new, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, 24 sermons through the life of Joshua was a lot to do. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And uh, if you're hoping that it's a shorter series, don't get your hopes up. Um, we, uh, we've got a lot just embedded in this, this brief statement that just takes us a couple of minutes to read together and, you know, out loud. And it is just chock full of uh, just very important and very deeply meaningful statements. And, um, you know, some of them are a little bit easier to swallow. Some of them we're a little bit more comfortable with to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit is a, a pretty comfortable thing. Not a lot of contention around that one, even though it is something that marks us as different than a lot of people in the world today. Um, Christians believe that God is a spirit and that he has a Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside of us. That's an important statement for us to really claim that we believe it and then to stand on it and live according to it uh, has a lot of really rich meaning for us. So that in and of itself is just one example of the many things that are here. Some of them are a little bit harder to digest. Some of them we're a little less familiar with. And uh, frankly, there are some versions of the Apostles' Creed floating around out there that are different. As we talked before, the text that we have chosen to recite together is probably different than one that you maybe grew up reciting. Some of them it's just a matter of changing, you know, old English phrases into something a little bit more modern or current, and then others take out entire lines. Um, and some of them change the wording up a little bit because of some theological debate behind it. And I have been diving into those things, and I find them fascinating. And we're going to get to those. And so if you find some of the, the statements that we're reading out loud a little bit troubling or a little bit, you know, raises some flags for you, like, I don't know that I understand what I'm saying when I say this, stick around. All right, we're going to dive into these things. I've been diagramming things on the board back here. I have been really digging into this, texting pastors and, and, and friends and people, trying to dive into this and understand what all is here for us. So today, though, this is what we're going to focus on. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. That's it. That's where we're going to stop in our, our pursuit today through the Apostles' Creed is just right there in that very first statement. And I think before we get too far into this statement, we need to understand that if you remember reading the whole thing, it says, I believe in God the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so just to kind of clarify things, not to dive deep into this teaching, but we serve a triune God, one God in three persons. And that concept is one that we can't fully understand and embrace, right? Because even our best explanations of it fall a little bit short because God is God and we are not because of who he is. Now, I'm not trying to step on any toes. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable with what I believe about what the scripture teaches. I'm just saying as you dive deeper into that, there are some misconceptions about the Trinity that can get you far afield of what the Bible really teaches. And so we need to be careful that we understand that God is one God who exists in three persons, and they are not three separate parts of God. Each one individual is fully God. So Jesus is fully God in the form of a man, just as God the Father is fully God in spirit alone, and just as the Holy Spirit is fully God who comes to live inside of us. 
This is a great mystery. But just to kind of give you some scriptural context for that, let me turn to Mark chapter 1. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, um, it just jumps right into the story with Jesus' baptism. So it introduces John, who is Jesus' cousin, who's out, uh, in the, out in the wilderness living, and he's at the Jordan River, and he's preaching repentance, and he's baptizing people there in the Jordan River. And it says in, in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And so what we see in this moment, in this picture, is we see all three persons of the Trinity, all three individual persons of the Trinity present in one moment. We see Jesus there in the water with John. That's God the Son in the flesh. We see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven. And then we also hear the voice of God the Father in heaven, you are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. But all three are still one. It says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, excuse me, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So we don't serve three gods, we serve one God who exists in three persons. All right? And this is supposed to be something that we mull over a bit. Right? If, that's, if that's a little bit hard to chew on and swallow, good, you're listening. Right? If that's something that, that is really confusing, that's where you're supposed to be. It means you're thinking about it the right way. If you can't fully grasp what it means to say that God is one God who exists in three persons, then you're really thinking about this. Right? These are supposed to challenge us. These ideas, these, these understandings of what the Scripture teaches are supposed to take us outside of ourselves. And we are supposed to be in awe and reverence of our Father in heaven because He is worth it. So, we believe in a three-person God. One God who exists in three persons. This is what Trinitarianism is. right? We believe in God as the Trinity. All right? Now, We could dive more into that. We're going to come to those concepts again and again because we're going to talk about the Son and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And as we do those, you know, we get a little bit clearer picture of what these things are. But we have to be careful that we don't just simplify God into something that is easy for us to hold on to because God is so much more than that. So, That being said, back to the statement that we're looking at today. The statement is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I want to really focus in today on that word almighty. Now, I remember whenever I was a kid, uh, we we would play games, me and my siblings. I would have four brothers and two sisters. And I have one older brother, but I have three younger brothers. And for anyone who ever had three younger brothers and could imagine having three younger brothers, it was important to establish that there were certain rules that only applied to you. It was really important that they understood that I got to make up rules as I went along because I was going to win. Didn't matter what, how good they got, how big they got, how strong they got, 
I had to win. And so there were certain things that only applied to me. And so, in, for example, we used to do Nerf battles, right? We, we would gather up Nerf guns with our neighbors, our friends. We would come together and we'd put all the Nerf guns out in a pile. And, you know, of course, I would get to go first because I was the oldest and the biggest of all of our neighbors. And so I got to pick what I wanted first. And we had special rules where we could call time out. So, like, if we ran out of ammo and our younger sibling, my younger sibling was coming toward us, I could say, wait, time out. And they'd be like, no, you can't call time Yes, I can because, and I could make up whatever rule I wanted, and I would make sure that I was going to win that game, right? Or, you know, even the little pretend things whenever we were really young, you know, we got to say, ting. You know what ting means? It means I have a force field, and that bullet you just shot at me and pretend just bounced off my force field. My brothers hated that, right? Well, I want a force field too. I don't care. I'm not shooting at you, right? And so there were certain things that I wanted to be completely in control of. I wanted to be all powerful. I wanted to be almighty, right? But I wasn't, right? We were just playing make-believe. God truly is almighty. The God that we serve, the God that we worship is truly almighty, there is nothing that can get in his way. Nothing will ever beat him. In Isaiah 14, verse 27, listen to this. He says, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? What Isaiah is saying here is this. He's saying, look, if God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. If God has set things in motion as his will has orchestrated, you can bet as your last dollar on the fact that it's going to come to pass. Who could get in his way? Who could frustrate his plans? Who could stop him whenever he's purposed to do something? The answer is no one. God truly is almighty. God is going to accomplish what he plans to accomplish there is no force greater than him. There is no power that can stop him. That is the God that we serve. That is who we believe in. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the one who is powerful above everything else, the one that nothing can thwart him, nothing can frustrate him and stop him. Nothing. If you read the book of Job, this word Almighty comes up a lot of in the book of Job. As I just started to kind of search through the scriptures to, you know, just do a little quick word find, Almighty comes up a lot in the book of Job. I didn't count how many times because I was too excited looking at other things. But the point is that the word Almighty is there again and again and again. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes it's being used by his friends that we find out at the end of the book are not really giving him great counsel. But other times it's used by Job, and it's used by God, who are, of course, speaking rightly about the God that we serve. But here's, here's what happens. The overarching story is that Job is a righteous man, and the devil comes before God, and he accuses Job of only being righteous because God's blessed him. He basically says, God, if you take away the blessings, if you take away the protections you've given to him, if you take everything away from him, then he's going to curse you to your face. And God says, I'll take that bet. He says, sure, you can do anything you want to anything that he owns. You just can't touch him. You just can't take his life. 
And so Job, who is a righteous man, Job, who offers sacrifices not just for himself, but for all seven of his children. Job, who has done everything he can to make sure that he stands rightly before God, suddenly has his life come crashing down. In fact, servant after servant, before one is finished talking, the next one shows up to deliver more bad news. Your camels were stolen, your servants were killed, your sheep were stolen, your your servants were killed. A wind struck the house of your oldest son, when all of your children were there and gathered, and everyone in it died. One after another, everything that Job, Job had and felt secure in was gone. And Job cries out. He says, what, what did I do? What have I done? Why is this happening to me? And he asks God, God, what in the world am I supposed to do about this? How can I handle this? And he cries out again and again. His friends who come to see him try to tell him, well, just admit that you've sinned, and then everything will be all right. You know, just just admit it. You've done something wrong because God wouldn't do this to you unless you've done something wrong. And Job says, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Tell me what sin I've committed. Tell me what crime I'm being punished for because I haven't done anything wrong. And his friends call him a liar. Said, God wouldn't do this to you unless you'd done something. But in the end, Job is vindicated. Whenever the Lord finally answers, his, his friends are actually judged by God because their advice, their counsel, was not accurate. They said some accurate things, but they misinterpreted who God is. And they misunderstood who they were dealing with. They thought they had God figured out, but they didn't. But even Job didn't fully understand who he was dealing with. In Job chapter 40, verse 1 through 4, this is what God says in response to Job's words. So, chapter 40, let me point out. This has gone on for a while. All right? There's a lot of statements that are made by Job and by his friends back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's not until chapter 38 that God begins to respond. But here we are in chapter 40. Listen to what God says. The Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You see, whenever Job was confronted by the Lord, he, he finally understood who he was dealing with. He finally understood, I will say nothing. I put my hand over my mouth. He says, I've opened my mouth and I shouldn't have. I've said two things that I should not have said and I'm done. I put my hand over my mouth, he says. Why? Because he's face to face with the Almighty. God is all-powerful. God has everything in his hands. God is in charge and in control of literally everything. God is sovereign over it all. Listen to some of the things that God brings to Job's mind. As Job has accused God of being unfair, God answers Job with some questions for him. In Job chapter 38, we see some of these things. 
God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Right? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Like Job is saying, God, you've been unfair. And God is saying, look, you want to judge me? Tell me, tell me about how, what you were doing whenever I designed and created the earth. Where were you? He goes on. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who has enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. He says, think about the ocean and how it has its boundaries. Are you powerful enough to contain the ocean? Are you the one who, who said this is how far the seas will go? This is where the waves will end? You weren't there. You don't have that power. He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? What God is saying is, listen, I was there. I did these things. I have set the boundaries of the whole world. I'm the one who commands the morning, who has set all of these things in motion and sustains them by my power. This is the God that we serve. God is revealing to Job something about him that he didn't understand before, that God is truly sovereign over it all. God has the power and the authority over everything. If you continue reading, and this is if, if we were doing homework, right, back to my teacher days, I would say read Job 38, 39, and 40. Because in there, God just names something after the next, after the next, after the next. When you think about just the amazing world that we live in, right? He, he brings up, how is it that, that lions know how to take care of their cubs, Right? How is it that the eagle tends to her hatchlings? Have you instructed them? Did you teach them to do that? Did you write that into the pattern of nature and the world around it? Was that your design? And those are just surface level things. And the deeper we study in the world of science, the more we see how intricately designed our world really is. How everything is held together in a balance that could only have been fabricated by an infinitely wise, creative mind. It is God who set all these things in motion. It is that God that we believe in. It is the one who set everything in motion. It's the one who designed the world that we live in. It's the one who sends rain in its season to water the earth. It's the one who gives us sunshine to help the plants grow. It is the one who is in charge of it all. When we say we believe in God the Father Almighty, we're talking about the one who stands over it all who is powerful above it all. And he invites us to pray and ask for what's on our hearts. He invites us to enter into his presence and make our requests known to him. He invites us to lay our burdens down at his feet. He's almighty. He can handle it. 
I believe in the Lord God Almighty. Listen, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, this isn't even the point he's making. He's trying to you know, tell the church at Ephesus about how he's praying for them. But he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us. He says, to him be the glory forever. But the point that he's getting, the, the, just this little side comment that he's making right here that we see is that he is, what Paul understands about God is that God is more powerful than we can even ascribe credit to him for. Think about the most powerful thing that you could imagine. God's more powerful than that. Think about the most amazing miracle God could do right now for you. God can do far more abundantly beyond that. Think of the most incredible thing that would testify to His glory. God is able to do way more than that. You're not creative enough to come up with God, what God is able to do. Your imagination doesn't go far enough. What we understand is that God is far more than we can ever understand. We are serving God Almighty. There is nothing beyond his scope. There is nothing outside of his power. There is nothing that he is not able to do. That's the God that we believe in. Psalm 91. This is a psalm written by David. This God, when we understand that he's the God that we serve, it changes the outlook we have. When we can really get this, we can rest underneath that power. When we understand that God is almighty and that he invites us into his family, it gives us peace to rest no matter what is going on outside of us. Look in Psalm 91 with me. Let's just read this whole psalm together. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The, the picture here is this. Like, it's like a, a chicken bringing its chicks to rest underneath it, right? It's, it's that come and, and find shelter here. Find rest here. Find comfort here because I got this. We come under his shadow, meaning we are under his protection. He says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone." You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. This is the Lord speaking. I will set him securely on high. 
because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Listen, when we understand that the God that we believe in, the God that we serve, is truly almighty, then we can understand the the question that Paul asked, what do we have to be afraid of? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's why Jesus said, don't be worried about whenever they bring you before the the councils and before judges and before governors. Don't worry about what you're going to say because I'll give you the words that you need. We find in the scriptures where it says, don't be worried about people who can take your life because that's all they can take. We say, well, that's kind of a lot, but it's not everything. It's nowhere near everything. What we have in Christ is so much more than this life. That's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because then I get rid of this weight. I get rid of all this. That was not a fat joke. Anyway, I get rid of all this thing that ties me down, that weighs me down, that trips me up. I get rid of the flesh whenever I die. And I get to live forever in the presence of the Lord. That's what we have. When we serve the Almighty, it doesn't matter what comes our way. We can see the storm around us. We can see the dangers that are, that, that are falling all around us. And we can have confidence in the fact that we rest in Him. That's what we mean when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in the One who is able to do far more than we could ask or think. We believe in the one who is over it all and has the authority to change it all according to his will. Who can frustrate him? Who can change him? The answer is no one. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you for being almighty. Thank you for being a father to us that you have invited us into your family so that all these things that we understand about you, all this truth that you revealed to Job about how powerful you are, how in control you are, how in charge you are, we can have confidence that we're on the right side. Father, to be outside of your family and to recognize that you're almighty would be terrible indeed. It would be terrifying to encounter a God like you if we were in rebellion. But God, I thank you that you have invited us in. Not only did you invite us in, but you made it possible for us to come in. Because you sent your son to die for us. To take the punishment of our sin and to cleanse us from unrighteousness so that we truly could enter in that we could be your children. God, our Father Almighty. God, I pray that we would come in and find rest in you. That we would find our shelter in you. Father, that we would recognize that there is nothing that can come against us 
what he said in Psalm 91, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, for you will give your angels charge concerning us to guard us in all our ways. God, I pray that we would put all of our hope in you. Not in us, not in our own counsel, not in some charismatic leader, not in some philosophy, not in any economy, not in anything that this world has to offer, but we would put all of our hope in you because you're worthy of it all. Be glorified in us as we give our hearts completely to you. And Father, may we acknowledge and find comfort in the fact that you are God the Father Almighty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You respond to the Lord as he leads you. We just encourage you to ponder what it means that God Almighty wants to be your Father. That He is inviting you into His family. How that would change the way we see the world. You respond to the Lord as we sing.